Simpsons fans here this morning. Yeah, woo. Praise God for the Simpsons. Well, if you're a fan of the Simpsons, uh, you know of Ned Flanders. Uh, Ned is the overly positive, fundamentalist Christian neighbor of Homer Simpson. Uh, Flanders is always quick to proselytize Homer with a church invitation or a Bible verse. He takes his faith seriously, as seriously as uh, Homer takes his donuts. Now, you might call Ned a Christian zealot. A zealot is a religious fanatic who probably takes their religious beliefs and practices to excess. Uh, Our world has always had uh, zealots in it. Normally, we just kind of roll our eyes at them. Oh, you know, that's a super religious guy. Uh, Since 9-11, though, religious zealotry has actually been targeted by the press as something more than amusing. According to many, religious zealotry is dangerous. It was religious radicals who blew up the Twin Towers. Since then, one of the worst things you can be is a zealot, whether Muslim, Jewish, or Christian. Now, of course, zealotry does have its dangers. When religious fervor is combined with uh, violence, you get a pretty nasty combination. But on the other hand, not all zealotry is wicked. In fact, if you read the Bible, you know there is no way to follow Christ except as a zealot. Jesus himself was commended as one whose zeal for the house of the Lord consumed him. We can't follow Jesus authentically without a zeal that, frankly, our neighbors are going to find offensive. Now, this doesn't mean we need to be Ned Flanders, let alone blow up buildings. But there is only one way to be a Christian— and it's with zeal. I thought of Ned uh, and his zealotry as I was studying our passage from Scripture for the morning. If you're just joining us, we are in uh, an extended study of the letter to the Romans in the New Testament in a series that we are currently calling Anguish and Hope. Now, if you don't know, Romans is a very big, important book in the New Testament. New Testament is that portion of the Bible written after the life of Jesus. Old Testament is written before the life of Jesus. And Romans is a big book. It was written by a guy named Paul. Paul was a follower of Jesus, a first century Christian missionary, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Paul traveled all around the Mediterranean region, the Roman Empire, uh, preaching the gospel, uh, starting churches. And he really wanted to visit the Christian church in Rome. Uh, So he writes a letter called the Letter to the Romans, uh, in which he introduces himself and summarizes for them the message of Christianity that he really wants to share with them. Now, for this series, we are in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is expressing his anguish, his anguish that his people, the nation of Israel, have not received Jesus as the Messiah who came to die for their sins. This makes Paul sad. It makes Paul incredibly sad to know that his people... Israel has has not welcomed Jesus into their hearts as he has into his. And in chapters 9 through 11, Paul wrestles with the question of how this could be. How could God's chosen people, the Israelites, who are full of zeal, miss God's Messiah? So with that introduction, let me go ahead and read you our passage for the morning. It's Romans chapters 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers and sisters, 
my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now you can hear in this passage Paul's heartache that his own people, Paul was a Jew, that his own people, Israel, have not received the gift of salvation sent them by God. Most of them have rejected Jesus as, this, as the Messiah. Now, despite their rejection, though, Paul still has hope for their salvation. As he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He's anguished that his religious family has rejected Jesus as Lord, but he still has hope that God can make a way for them. Now, this is not Paul's main point in the passage, which we're going to get to in a moment, but I think it's actually worth contemplating. We should be inspired by Paul's passion on behalf of his people. He has not given up on them and continues to hope and pray for them as we should hope and pray for our families that they too may be saved. Those of us who are believers here this morning all have people in our lives who are not following Jesus and may have even decisively rejected him. But if we love these people, we can't give up on them. Who is that to you? Who's your Israel? Who's your Israel, those people who have rejected Jesus and in so doing have broken your heart? If you are writing this letter, who would you be writing about? My heart's desire and prayer to God for blank is that they may be saved. Your heart's desire and prayer to God for your husband is that he may be saved. Your heart's desire and prayer to God for your children is that they may be saved. Your heart's desire and prayer to God for your best friend is that she may be saved. Who's your Israel? It might be easy to give up on praying for them, reaching out to them, thinking, you know, they're, they're a lost cause. They've made their choice. It might be easy to do that because, frankly, it makes it easier, slightly easier, to watch them live their life rejecting God, giving up on, on them. It makes it a little less painful. But we can't give up on our loved ones. They're our loved ones. God loves them even more than we do. And if we're not praying for them, who is? So that's just an introductory comment. It's not even Paul's main point here, but I thought it was worth thinking about for a second. The majority of this text, though, is, is, is an explanation of why exactly Paul's people rejected the gospel of Christ. And in so doing, Paul returns to maybe the big theme of the book of Romans. According to Paul, the reason Israel 
rejected Jesus is because Israel had a mistaken understanding of how someone could be made righteous before God. To be righteous before God, as Pastor Jacob, our new Pastor Jacob, explained so skillfully last week, to be declared righteous before God means to have a harmonious relationship with God. That's what it means to be declared righteous before God. It means to have a harmonious relationship with God. Unfortunately, this does not describe our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is not harmonious, to use another uh, musical term. Our relationship with God is discordant. We live in conflict with God. We are in discord with God. God is perfect. We are very imperfect. Uh, God is a God of love. We are people of hate. Uh, God loves us. We sort of ignore and hate him. We do not have a harmonious relationship with God. And in order to be restored to God, in order to be saved and to have a harmonious relationship with God, we need to be, Paul says, be made righteous in God's sight. And Paul's whole point in Romans is that there is only one way to be made righteous in God's sight. What is it? It's to receive, by faith, the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus died the perfect death on the cross for our sins. If we believe that message in our hearts, we can be made righteous. God gives us his righteousness in Christ by faith. And that's all it takes to be declared righteous to God, to receive the righteousness of God by believing in Jesus. This, however, is not how Israel tried to be righteous. Instead of receiving God's righteousness in Christ by faith, uh, Israel tried to do something crazy. They, they tried to do something um, kind of gutsy, kind of ballsy, if you ask me. What are they trying to do? They tried to establish their own righteousness. That's what Paul says. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So instead of receiving God's righteousness by faith in Christ, they sought to establish their own. How did they do this? By working hard. By working really hard to keep the Old Testament law. Many Jews thought that by working hard to be good Jews, they could prove themselves righteous before God by by being circumcised, by eating the right foods, by taking off the right days, by avoiding the wrong kinds of people, by working really hard to obey the Old Testament law, they really thought they could prove themselves righteous before God. And Paul has said in Romans, it just doesn't work that way. You can't be made righteous by the law. The law is too strict. That bar is too high, and we're too short. We can't jump over that bar. Besides which, the law was never meant to make people righteous. That was never the goal of the law. The law was given to expose us as sinners who need forgiveness. And this is part of what Paul says here in this passage in verse 4, when he says, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, theologians have actually written a bunch of books on this phrase, Christ is the end of the law. And they have debated and argued over what exactly Paul is saying there, Christ is the end of the law. And I don't mean to shortchange uh, a very rich and important conversation, but we're going to jump over all of it completely. And what Paul is basically saying here is that the law was never intended to make people righteous in God's sight. The law was always intended to point people to Jesus. Christ is the end of the law. 
Another way of translating that passage is Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is the culmination of the law. The law exposes us as sinners who need to be forgiven by Christ. Christ is the end of the law like that. So I know there's a lot there, but to sum it all up, Paul is explaining why Israel was not yet saved. Israel was not yet saved because they sought to establish their own righteousness by obeying the law, which cannot be done. The only way to be saved, to have harmonious relationship with God restored, is to receive by faith the righteousness of God given to us in Christ. This was the purpose of the law for the Jews, to point them to Jesus. So that's what Paul is saying here. Now let's talk application. I know we might not be Jewish, for the most part. But, as you can expect, this is still important for us to hear. It's important for us to hear because even though we might not be Jewish, many of us make the same mistake. We try to establish our own righteousness in God's sight. You might say we try to prove ourselves to God as worthy so that God might be just a little bit more impressed by us, enough to let us into heaven. All of us, Jew and Gentile, sometimes make this mistake. How so? In all kinds of ways. We try to be good, moral people, so that when we show up at heaven's gate, God's like, wow, you made it. Here's your reward for the life you lived. We try to live the perfect Christian life, or at least the good enough Christian life. We try to impress others with our religiosity. We go on mission trips. We give lots of money away to prove to God that we're serious about our faith. We serve God at church in all kinds of impressive ways. One of the ways that I tried to really impress God early on in my life was by becoming a pastor. I thought, well, this, this will get him. <laughs> you know, now there were good reasons that I became a pastor, right? You know, uh, the stress-free living the, uh, the riches, <laughs> the fame, the acclaim, the glory. You know, good reasons. But there were bad reasons, and this was one of them. To prove my worth to God, to improve my standing in his eyes. Now, we all do good things to prove ourselves to God. Not that we shouldn't do these things. Go on mission trips, serve our neighbors, become pastors, go into helping professions. But we need to understand that compared to the righteousness of God given to us in Christ, our righteousness really doesn't amount to much. The Bible actually calls our righteous deeds, you know what the Bible calls our righteous deeds compared to God's righteousness? Filthy rags. In fact, that comes from the prophet Isaiah. Our righteous deeds are filthy rags to God. Uh, Prophet Isaiah was written in Hebrew. Do you know what a literal translation of that phrase is? Menstrual cloths. Our righteous deeds are menstrual cloths compared to God's righteousness. Your good actions are dirty tampons compared to God's righteousness. I am quoting the Bible. (laughs) Nobody go home this morning and say, Matt was so foul this morning. This is the Bible. Translators have sanitized it for us because they're afraid of us hearing what God is actually saying. Our filthy, our, our, our righteous deeds are dirty tampons compared to God's righteousness. That's graphic, but memorable. <laughs> so that's a graphic illustration. Let me give you a stupid one. Um, it's like the nailed it meme. Do you know the nailed it meme? Uh, this has actually been turned into a Netflix show. 
which was incredibly predictable. Um, on Pinterest or on other web pages, people share all sorts of crafts and desserts and recipes along with instructions on how to make these things. And it's usually a step-by-step -step picture guide. And the end product, it always looks so great and so perfect, like right out of a magazine. And the people who make it make it look so easy. Then those some like ordinary people like us try it and it's not that easy. And the end product looks absolutely terrible and embarrassing. And people post a picture of their end product compared with the example with nailed it stamped in the picture. Uh, in fact, here are a few of my favorite nailed it examples. I had way too much fun this week looking at nailed it examples. Here's an example of a hedgehog cake that somebody tried to make on Pinterest, and here is the hedgehog cake that they ended up with. <laughs> nailed it. Uh, here's a picture of a fruit turkey that somebody thought they could make uh, for their Thanksgiving dinner table, and here is the fruit turkey they ended up with. <laughs> I actually don't think they tried very hard to make that fruit turkey. That's just bananas and chives and apples. All right, here is a picture. This is actually my favorite. Uh, the cookie monster cookie cupcake. Just so great. Wouldn't you love to be able to make that? And here's what they ended up with. <laughs> Nailed it. And then here's a holiday version. Here's a, a picture of a, a, a nice Christmas card baby, you know, holding some, some uh, Christmas tree lights. And then here's the nailed it version. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like that one on my Christmas card uh, better than that one. Here's the point. That's what establishing our own righteousness looks like compared to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is perfect. The life of Christ was perfect. His death was sufficient. Everything comes together perfectly. The cookie monster cupcake looks and tastes perfect, and God gives it to us to eat. It's the perfect cookie monster cookie cupcake, but what do we want to do? We want to make our own. And we think we can, so we try it, and it looks terrible. I mean, it looks terrible. Even our best attempts to live for God are pathetic and embarrassing. Am I right? Our best attempts to live for God are pathetic and embarrassing compared to his righteousness, whether it's getting ourselves to church in the morning or, or serving our neighbors or, or, or tithing or, or trying to live good moral lives or being good husbands or good spouses or good wives or, or, or good, being good parents or just teaching our kids about Jesus. We can't do it right. We can't do anything right. We just make a mess. And then we you know, make this big, messy blue cupcake and we sort of offer it to God like, see, God nailed it. Now, God loves us, but he's not actually that impressed by our lives. He sort of likes our cupcakes the way I like my little kid's artwork. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful and terrible at the same time. It's not good enough to get into heaven. You can't get into heaven by showing God something that you tried to do. For that, we need perfect cupcakes. We need the perfect life. Thankfully for us, this is what Jesus came to provide. He lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. He nailed it, ironically, in a way involving some nails. By his perfect righteousness, by his perfect cookie monster cupcakes, do we get into heaven? Not by our own. That's what God is asking us to believe as Christians, that the life Christ lived and the death he died was perfect and that God gives us Christ's righteousness, Christ's cupcakes, so that we can be forgiven and saved. 
So that's actually the bulk of the passage here in Romans 10. But there is another verse here that I've already alluded to that I want to address before we close with communion in a few moments. It's verse 3. As Paul says in verse 3, For I can testify about Israel that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. As a Jew himself, and and, and, uh, as a Jewish Pharisee at that, Paul knew that many in Israel were zealous for God. They were religious zealots. They were committed. They worked really hard to prove themselves to God. They had a reputation. The problem, Paul says, is that their zeal was not based on knowledge. That's what he says. I can testify about Israel that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. They thought they could establish their own righteousness by religious zeal and by devotion. Paul tells them they cannot. We cannot be made righteous through faith in Christ. His cupcakes. Israel was zealous but not knowledgeable about how to actually be made righteous in God's eyes. They were running really hard but in the wrong direction. They were pursuing righteousness in the law but missed the goal, the point, the culmination of the law, which is to lead them to Christ. Israel was zealous but not knowledgeable. The lesson here, and it's a big one, is that it doesn't matter how sincere you are in your devotion. Sincerity in your beliefs will not get you very far with God if you're running really hard in the wrong direction. You still won't cross the finish line. If you're running really hard in the wrong direction, you might even run off a cliff, albeit very quickly. This is important because, as I mentioned in the introduction, there are a lot of sincerely motivated religious zealots in the world today. They come in all shapes and sizes and beliefs. Yeah, some of them are violent religious thugs, but others of them are not and are even actually kind of impressive in their religious commitment. They work really hard to be religious. Lots of them aren't even Christian. Frankly, some of the most impressively religious people I know are members of the Mormon church who live in my neighborhood. Or Muslim devotees who pray five times a day. I don't pray five times a day. And say whatever you want about Ned Flanders' goofy Christian extremism. But he's certainly committed to the cause In terms of commitment level, more of us should be like Ned Flanders. In today's day and age, a lot of people think that's what counts, sincerity and zeal. I mean, you've heard the sentiment before. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you truly believe it. You've heard that out before in our society. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you truly believe it. That can't be right. I mean, if that's right, we've got to reclassify a whole bunch of religious crazy people as religious heroes because at least they were committed to the cause. Bin Laden, David Koresh. Zeal doesn't matter. Sincerity doesn't matter. What matters is zeal plus knowledge. What matters is zeal plus faith in Christ. Zeal plus ignorance gets you nowhere or worse. Zeal plus faith in Christ gets you to God. Paul actually returns to this idea in chapter 12. 
couple chapters down the road, when he tells us, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. To serve Jesus authentically requires us to be a zealot. It's not possible to follow Jesus without jumping all in and giving him everything. Now, what does that look like? What does Christian zealotry look like? It does not mean Bible-thumping your neighbors to death uh, or throwing Harry Potter books in the fire. It means loving and serving God and others radically. It means making great sacrifices of time and money and energy to serve others as Jesus served us. It means going to great lengths to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives to have sin purged from us. It means becoming an integral member of Christ's body here on earth, his church. It means telling the world about Jesus and our neighbors and our friends and our family, even if they're slightly irritated by it. Christian zealotry means all that and more, but it does not mean, it does not mean doing these things so that we can establish our own righteousness before God. This is key, and this is the big difference between Paul and Israel. Many in Israel were zealous for God because they hoped that by their zeal they could prove themselves to God. Do you understand all the problems with working really hard to prove yourself good enough to God? First of all, it's exhausting trying to keep thousands and thousands of rules every day. You're going to wear yourself out. It's anxiety-provoking. I mean, you're never sure every day. Never sure. Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough to make it in? And if you ever convince yourself that you got there, it's proud and arrogant, thinking, hey, I did it. I did it. I forced my way into heaven. And now I can judgmentally look down upon everybody else who hasn't done that yet. That's the danger of Israel's brand of zeal. It was a pursuit of righteousness that left them exhausted, anxious, arrogant, and deceived, thinking they had forced their way into heaven. We all know zealous religious people who are like this, right? Some of us are them. We work really hard to prove ourselves to God. And once we think we have, we tiredly look down at everybody else. That's not what Paul means, to never be lacking in zeal. Our zeal isn't so we can force our way into heaven. Our zeal is a response to what Christ has already achieved on our behalf, apart from our efforts. Our zeal comes from gratitude, not from desperation, not from pride. Christ's zeal doesn't leave us exhausted because Christ did the heavy lifting for us. Christ did the baking. He baked the cupcakes. And Christ's zeal doesn't leave us anxious because we can be assured that his work was sufficient. The cupcakes are good enough. And importantly, Christ's work leaves us humble because given the rather unimpressive appearance of our cupcakes, what right do we have to judge anybody else for the quality of theirs? Christ did it. He nailed it. We didn't. And this is God's invitation for us this morning. God is inviting us this morning to zeal, to be zealous in our faith. He's inviting us to be an extremist, a radical, a fanatic in love and faith. 
Not because we can prove ourselves to God. We can't. We don't need to. We can be zealots for God because how else would we respond to a God who left heaven and came to earth to die for our sins? How else would we respond to a God who did that other than zealously giving him everything we have? You come up with a better way to respond to that and I'll listen.